to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, this is Gary Ross, the host of VC Law, brought to you by the American Bar Association. Today, it's my pleasure to have with me Alpa Patel. Alpa, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Gary. Alpa, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Absolutely. Well, um, as you mentioned, I am a a partner at Kirkland & Ellis in our Chicago office. I came to Kirkland after working um, at the SEC Division of Investment Management for many years, and and I had sort of the fortuitous timing to join that group right after Dodd-Frank. So they had a mandate to register all the private fund advisors that had not had to register previously before the financial crisis. And so, you know, I think the SEC sort of looked around and realized the composition of our registered advisors is going to severely change and our our rules don't really match uh, private fund advisors. And so I was in D.C. practicing uh, hedge fund formation law and private equity law uh, for clients of, of various sizes. And the SEC came calling, looking for attorneys to help draft rules, help them find out what are the what are the areas where our Advisors Act just doesn't work for con- in the context of private equity and hedge funds. And so I was fortunate to join. And it, five six years later, having spent time writing rules, writing no action guidance, teaching the SEC exam staff and the and the enforcement staff, hey, here's. Here's issues that you should focus on on exams. You know, this these other types of issues that you think are issues really aren't. This is this is really standard operating procedure. All the LPs are very well aware of how a waterfall works or how carried interest works. So don't spend, don't worry about that issue, particular issue. But you know, maybe you should focus on these particular issues. And um, that was sort of helping them sort of hit the ground running when all of a sudden, you know, forty percent of their registered advisors now had private funds, and and the staff had not been. Um, sort of attuned to what what the unique issues might be. So it was a really exciting time to be at the commission. And um, when it was time to leave, looked around and wanted to get back into private practice and and joined Kirkland to help build out the regulatory team there. As you can imagine, our clients are, you know, when you're forming funds, as I know you, you practice as well, a large function of their operations after the formation is dealing with regulatory issues. So that practice has sort of blossomed over the years as the SEC has really focused on on looking at these issues on, on exams and enforcement matters. And now I spend my, my day-to-day counseling clients of all sizes, private equity, venture capital, hedge funds, trying to work through, you know, whether you're registered or you're an exempt advisor or your family office, trying to figure out how do you sort of stay on the right side of the applicable regulations. Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of people, when they leave the SEC, they stay in D.C., but you went over to Chicago. Can you tell us I about did. that without revealing anything personal that you don't want to <laughs> no, share? No, yeah, we, I love D.C., and, and we were there for a long time. I was there since law school, and it's a great town. And, and I did. I was with Kirkland in our D.C. office for a couple of years and then just decided uh, my husband's a Badger, so he was excited to get back to, oh. to the Midwest. And there, there are Badgers galore in uh, <laughs> Chicago, so uh, was happy to make the move. And, you know, that is actually Kirkland's sort of headquarters as well. So as you can imagine, it's not bad for the career to, to make it back to – to the main office and, you know, the, the Chicago office is, um, it's fantastic. It's vibrant. It's growing as always, and it's still, um, you know, the center of our gravity. So it's been a great, um, great move. Great. And how long's the drive from Chicago up to Madison? 
Flight's two hours. We can do it in an hour and a half if we're lucky, but uh, <laughs> traffic's oh. been terrible lately. Yeah, that's not bad at all. For the uh, the Dodd Frank Act, obviously there was a precipitating factor. There was the uh, <laughs> you know the financial meltdown. There was the Great Recession and 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 all of that. Uh, we're here to talk about today the the proposed rules of private fund advisors that the SEC released in February 9th. And as of this podcast, they just recently reopened the comment period after closing. Now here, it doesn't, I mean, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like there's a precipitating factor here. You know, we haven't had, obviously we've had COVID disruption and the like, but I I, I didn't have the sense that anything was broken in the sense that you know, whereas Dodd-Frank was to, to redress something that happened. These rules, it doesn't seem like anything's happened. I mean, the SEC has their 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 goals for it, and we'll talk today about, you know, some things are good or whatnot, but it doesn't seem like there was a precipitating event that led to this. What, what? Yeah, that's, that's it's, it's very true, right? So Dodd-Frank, you had, you know, the financial crisis and then the actual st- new statute that had mandatory rulemaking to come out of it. So the SEC didn't have a lot of discretion into into what they were going to take up on their rulemaking agenda. They, they had discretion in how they were going to shape those rules because there wasn't a lot of guidance in there. But they were mandated to say all of the private fund advisors need to register. And here are the narrow exemptions that that you can keep people out. But that was mandatory rulemaking, to your point. Now, I think to your to your other point, you know, this was a function of not very many people make the argument that uh, private funds were the cause of the, the financial crisis. But if you're a regulator, you sort of don't let any good crisis go without um, <laughs> taking taking the shots that you want. And the SEC for many years have been trying to close this loophole uh, that existed mm. in the Advisors Act to, to keep, keep private fund advisors out and found their finally found their moment with, with this massive rulemaking of Dodd-Frank to, to pull them in. This... Current, you know, the current sort of rulemaking agenda is very robust, not just the rules we're talking about here in the proposals, but it's sort of rulemaking at an unprecedented rate in the SEC's history. And that is just a function of the chairman. And there, you're right, there's no financial crisis to point to. There's no new legislation to point to. It is really just the chairman that has sort of the, 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 uh, in their mind, in, in Chairman Gensler's uh, mind, the mandate to push through, you know, groundbreaking reforms on all sorts of industries. So it is all discretionary and, and you know, where that leads us, we'll, we'll sort of see. But um, you're right, nothing to nothing specifically to point to, to say this is absolutely needed in this moment. Now, uh, obviously, you're no longer at the SEC, but uh, how do you think things went down inside the inside the building? Does the commissioner just decide, hey, we need to get tough with private fund advisors? Uh, do you think he uh, gathers together with some advisors and comes out with a rough outline yeah. and then throws it to the uh, uh, to the funds division? How, how much direction do you think is uh, comes from kind of up top, and how how is that sort of fleshed out the actual rules? Yeah, it's a great it's a great process point of internally in the building. Whenever there's a new chairman, and and I live through a couple of them. When there's a new chairman, you sort of dust off the priority list. Each policy group, so investment management, who who monitors the uh, or administers the Investment Company Act and the Investment Advisors Act, has their list of wants. Right, that every every group's got it ready, and then depending on who the director is, you know, it may shape one way or the other. And when the new chairman comes in, you dust off the list. You decide what order do we want to put it in to present to try to get our stuff on the chairman's rulemaking agenda because they are the one that will control all rulemaking, what goes on, what doesn't go on, how fast we move. I, What I've gathered from this particular chairman, though, is it has not necessarily run that way. You know, it, the chairman came in with his own mind about here are the things that we need to address. And so I don't know that private fund, these private fund rule proposals 
were on the Division of Investment Management's top priority list on day one. I think this was much more of a top-down Chairman Gensler saying, here's what we're doing, and I want it done immediately. Now, the issues they're trying to address didn't come out of thin air. There are a lot of issues that, you know, the granularity of it all would have come from the commission as a whole's experience with exams and enforcement and talking to constituents, limited partners, different people that come into the SEC to sort of plead their case about things that they need um, addressed by rulemaking. And so the details would have come up through the through the grant through the sort of organic process of the SEC, but the idea to say this is this is number one on my list or you know top top five on my list that really needs to get out the door uh, definitely would have been pushed through by Chairman Gensler and his his um, t- sort of senior advisors and group that surrounds him to push it forward. Yeah, and the comment about the SEC seeing things through exams and and the like and seeing. Uh, things that could have been made easier, easier on investors, uh, enhanced disclosure and the like. And we're about to get to the specifics here, but that's a good summary of the uh, um, beginning part of the SEC's proposed rules, which run, I think, 342 pages. And there at the beginning, they talk about like some of the calls behind that. And, yeah. And, and and with that, let's get right into the first thing. And I've got a bullet point list, Alpa, Alpa but if some other order makes sense, let me know. No, please. Uh, the first one here, the quarterly statement requirement. Um, do, do you want to give people a rough idea of the quarterly statement or I, I can as well? Yeah, it's no, fun. sure. What, what it effectively is going to require on all registered advisors, and I'll try to make that point as we go through, because some of these rules apply to uh, unregistered advisors as well, mm-hmm. ERAs, uh, foreign private advisors. But this rule in particular is for our registered advisors. It's going to require a quarterly statement for each private fund within 45 days of the end of a calendar quarter to, and, and within those quarterly statements are, are very specific, granular, itemized reporting on, and broadly, it's one on, on performance reporting of requirements of uh, quarterly performance on whether if you're a liquid fund or an illiquid fund, you would provide different performance metrics, but required on a, on a particular sort of standardized approach to reporting either IRR or, or total returns and, and what you're reporting there. But then also a detailed accounting of fund and fund fees and expenses. So a fund level table that details the amounts of compensation paid to the advisor or an affiliate. You know, if you're paying uh, carried interest to the to the GP that quarter, you'd have to report that. And then the amount of any offsets, rebates, and waivers as it applies. So it's you know, as as if your mind is sort of thinking, wow, this is getting complicated. You're right. Like there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of detail here, and we're only sort of halfway through what um, the requirement is. That the, the next sort of big category is detailed accounting of portfolio investment compensation. So this is geared directly towards private equity advisors that are taking um, effectively control positions in their portcos and and causing the portcos to pay certain items to the GP or the manager. And, you know, it's requiring a very specific, any any, any amounts uh, paid to related advisors, and you have to sort of granular, provide granular reporting on, on each of these things. And, you know, I think one of the big issues, uh, limited partners, one of the issues I'd say industry has always said, and certainly it's a theme in the comment letters that the industry has reported here is, look, this is what you're asking for is a highly negotiated point. Like, Obviously, we want to give disclosure to investors 
we negotiate with them what their specific disclosures are, it can get very long and and tedious. You know, Cowper's list of reporting is very different than uh, Oprah's. And so that's, that's, you know, we are giving them information they want in the format that they want. And then, oh, by the way, we fill out the ILPA template as well for, for a lot of other people. USCC are now asking for, you know, a, a third type of reporting to fit your your particular scheme. Um, we are always looking to be to be transparent with our investors. Now, on the other side of that is investors expressly saying to the SEC, we can't win these negotiations. We aren't getting the information we want. And so, you know, while the CalPERS and the OPERS may be getting their particular granular reporting, you know, filled, filled out, the middle market, so to say, LPs or smaller LPs are not getting that that concession from LPs. And that has been a constant refrain. Even when I was at the SEC, the limited partners coming in saying we can't get, you know, we're in these negotiations and we're not able to get the, the, the provisions we feel like we need, but we feel the need to invest anyway because we've got obligations to fill our own um, performance standards. So yeah. this is meant to hit a precise um, pre- precise request from groups of LPs that have said, we're not getting enough information from our managers. Yeah, this breakdown, uh, this breakdown of information in uh, categories that make sense. I mean, I've heard from LPs, there's one just a couple of days ago was saying, uh, he, he feels like he needs something to compare apples to apples and oranges yeah. to oranges that, you know, getting a form different form of disclosure from every fund really isn't that helpful when he's trying to make the decision of how to allocate. And uh, and so uh, I've heard really positive things, you know, uh, completely different from the fund side, the manager side, but the LP side. Yeah, I think, and you know, what I hear from the, the what I hear from the managers is, well, that's what ILPA template is supposed to be for, right? We, right. we sort of, through kicking and screaming, have adopted that, maybe not in full force, but certainly a large segment of the population has, and we have sort of uh, uh, agree to this idea of being able to submit um, to investors, you know, s- somewhat of a of a apples to apples comparison. Now, I think every manager and every LP will say, look, we don't fill out ILPA completely. We have reporting that is similar to ILPA, and then we do these other things as well. Or, you know, instead of this section, we do it this way. And so, you know, that has been the argument from the managers of like, we are, we are trying to provide this information. The problem is now you've just layered on an additional level of reporting right. that, that is not going to replace any of the other reporting, you know, but time will tell, I suppose, and whether these other reportings fall away, if they're able to get sort of this SEC quarterly statement through. But I think the biggest issue is that's fine. You know, we can do it. It needs to be a little bit less burdensome. Some of the granularity of what they're asking for is much more granular than you know even the largest of LPs necessarily get. So trying to find a middle balance there of of trying to meet uh you know standardized reporting form that actually works for both sides. Yeah, I, I would expect some of the uh, some of the other re, uh, reporting requests to to go away and people to converge on the SEC at least yeah. some maybe not the Calpers but some of the maybe the smaller institutional LPs. For anyone at home who uh, might be getting lost in the ac- acronyms a little bit, Alpo is referring to the Institutional Limited Partner Association, I, I believe. Correct. That's correct. Thank you. Okay. Um, one 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 other thing on that is this disclosure of leverage, which uh, the LPLs conversing with a couple of days ago was particularly con- concerned about. More disclosure surrounding that about how I know a lot of EC firms will, I guess in, in this mind, he was saying goosing the return a little bit. Don't want to mm-hmm. really say it, say it that way. But sometimes for the sake of argument, if you have a VC fund that's maybe uh, you know t- $10 million and then they're putting in an, an investment, but and then they're leveraging up a whole lot. 
And so they're making investment for two million, and maybe they're using four million of of leverage into there, and and uh, making an investment that's six million, and then it's returning two x. So you get a return of twelve million, and then they try to act like the two million turned into twelve twelve million, <laughs> uh, which he felt was unfair, and that he was looking for the SEC rules ad- addressing that. That's right. And so part of the performance reporting would require a presentation without the use of the subscription line, as you're sort of describing in, in the, cre- the credit facility of of what is the actual um, what is the actual IRR based on on not if you did not use that subline and actually called capital uh, from the day you made the investment. I think you're still going to see investors, you know, to, there, there is still use for that metric of, yes, it may be enhanced, it will be enhanced by the use of the credit facility. But if there is, you know, that is part of somebody's actual management here. This is how we use it. ULP can hold on to your dollars because we're going to use the credit line for six months. And if that's, if the IRR works out that way, that is IRR for, that you are actually experiencing in the sense that you didn't have to deploy the dollars. So I think what you'll end up seeing here, Gary, is just people it, you know, providing that number as well as providing the sort of the, mm-hmm. the leverage number to, to be able to show you how it, you are actually experiencing the dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, next, we'll turn to the private fund audit rule that's here. Yep. Now, um, is this a, a big thing? I mean, my understanding, uh, I thought most funds were already audited. So what, what was kind of the, the yeah, this the is a this is a I wouldn't call it a big thing. It's a weird thing. Uh, you know, it's one of these. You're right. If you look at the um, the history here, registered advisors are required to comply with the custody rule. One way to comply with the custody rule is to get a, a gap audit. So most advisors, certainly the registered advisors, meet this requirement. Now, there are we'll talk a little bit about the gaps of who doesn't do this. But I would I would venture to say most certainly most of my clients get most of their funds audited. I would also, even those that are not registered and not subject to the custody rule, LPs, have, this is like a standard negotiating point that they will want to see an audit by a reputable auditor. So even if you're not registered subject to the custody rule, I think you're, those funds are still getting audits. So it's a great question. What is the SEC going for in this requirement? And I think there's there's a couple of things. You know, what they say in the release is, well, we don't like there is some small sliver of population that's not getting an audit right. because they are um, uh, they are getting the surprise exam under the custody rule, and so there's a there's there's a gap there. Now, I, I would posit that that's a very small gap to have come to come out with full rulemaking to cover that gap doesn't right. frankly seem very plausible to me. Um, the other gap that they point to is that well, there are advisors that are registered that are subject to the custody rule, but don't technically have custody, and so aren't getting audits. Again, that strikes me as a very small universe. So, to your point, what were they really getting at here? I think this is a bit of a backdoor way for them to undercut regulation light. So if you have any non-US, if you are a non-US advisor that is registered with the SEC, the longstanding provision has been the, you know, the extraterritorial reach of the Advisors Act means that we will not apply the substantive provisions of the Advisors Act to non-US clients of non-US advisors. That has meant you know, a, a Cayman fund for a non-U.S. for a, a U.K. advisor doesn't technically have to get a gap audit, and that that whole concept oh. is is referred to as Reg Light. This feels like a way to back end into changing Reg Lights because they don't have a discussion of it in the release. It's just a practical effect of this rule would supersede this 
this known standing of reg light. And so that's fine if the SEC wants to change it. I think that should be up for rigorous debate about like all of a sudden we're changing how we approach, you know, the Supreme Court has said how the Advisors Act and, and other federal securities laws in Morrison should apply to non-U.S. advisors. If we're going to change that, that feels like something that should be done in the light of day and and full right. of full, a full discussion in the release as opposed to sort of a a, 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 a rule like this that cites to these really small narrow mm. areas that feel not quite plausible. Right. Yeah. And it was the second thing. I think it was the second thing in the proposal after the quarterly statement. Yes. So which is yes. kind of uh, odd. And um and in, in, in our practice, we see the surprise exam used in, for, for those of you who aren't familiar, complying with the custody rule, you can have a audited financials or you can have a surprise exam. And for us, the people who are investing in cryptocurrency, they have trouble getting audited financials. Yes. And so they have to get the surprise exam. So this is going to throw a little wrench. It will. And I'll tell you, the other group that has difficulty meeting um, that, that, that I found does do surprise exam is if you're an advisor, if you've got a really older fund and you're now looking to, to start auditing it, it is not just cost prohibitive. The auditors have said this is almost impossible for us to go back and recreate the work papers from 12 years ago to get you an audit now. And we've seen this in the context of uh, VC firms that didn't have to be registered are choosing to register and you've got older funds and now they're subject to the custody rule. How do you handle that? So at least they can do the surprise exam. Under this rule, surprise exam is no longer an option. You have to get an audit. And, that and this will be a good time to bring up um, these proposed rules. So say they're passed the way that they're proposed. So is it going to be just yeah. for funds that are formed from, from the time of effective on? Or are people going to have to drop everything and do the quarterly the quarterly information statement and do the, the audit financials and all of that for funds that have launched uh, you know nine years ago? Yep, that's a great point. And that's probably one of the biggest, biggest sort of... Um, pressure points in these rules, they are retroactive. So in the sense of the fund could have been formed nine years ago, doesn't matter. If it's in existence now, these rules will now apply to it. And, and you know, what we're talking about here can be changed in, in due course. There, no doubt the SEC will give a good long period of compliance. So it's not like it's going to have to have the, the month after um, the final rules are dropped. It'll be about a year or maybe longer for compliance. But you're mm -hmm. right. Any fund in existence is going to have to um, start doing these things going forward, which is going to be very difficult for the reasons we just talked about. Some of the later rules we are going to talk about that do have this same retroactive effect are, are truly problematic and, yeah. and going to be very difficult to implement. Yeah, and I can imagine some people who are in year seven or so and they're trying to wrap things up, they might roll the dice a little bit. And That's say, right. well, That's you right. know, and so we'll just try to stay under the radar yeah. for a little bit. Um, for the next one, the advisor-led secondaries rule. And in, in our practice, we, we represent a lot of emerging managers. So th this idea of kind of advisor-led secondaries isn't mm -hmm. something that comes up a whole lot every now and then, but a whole lot. Why, why don't you tell folks what this is getting at? What exactly an advisor-led secondary is? Yeah, these are they, this is a hot topic for the SEC. So this was not a surprising uh, point for them to focus on. We're seeing this on exams where um, the, the the transaction at issue is a highly conflicted transaction. So I understand why the SEC is focused on it, but it's effectively where the advisor decides we want to do something with the fund, either restructure it sell or sell an asset of the fund, recapitalize it to a new fund. And so the advisor is on both sides of this transaction. And sometimes um, it, this used to be called sort of the zombie fund phenomenon. And, and ah. I think the industry has grown past that sort of I would cite more to what was happening right after the financial crisis. We saw these concepts of zombie funds a lot where you had these funds that are in 
year nine, 10, and some of these assets are just worthless, but the advisor yeah. is like trying to do something with it. And so what you would sometimes see is them recapitalize it, spin it into a new fund, try to raise more money from a, from a new LP base to say, come invest in this new fund. And they've gotten an exit for themselves and for the older LPs. But you know, this new fund is recapitalized with sort of a dog investment. The advisor-led secondary industry is huge now in the last 10 years. And, and I get that's why the SEC wants to focus on it. But the counter to that is part of the reason it's huge is there is a playbook that advisors use now. And LPs are all sort of just aware of how what the right way to do one of mm-hmm. these transactions are. So in my mind, the concerns that the SEC sort of really were right about and, and thought through 10 years ago, they're still, on, they're still like a dog with that bone. It just isn't how these transactions go now. It's because it's matured as an industry, everybody sort of knows the right way to do an advisor-led secondary. And and the structures sort of look different in different ways, but it it fundamentally is, you know, still a conflicted transaction, but LPs are well aware of how these transactions work. And they typically have to give uh, LPAC consent, sign off on the agreements. And so um, they know what's happening and, and can ask the questions and L- uh, managers know very well the types of things they need to be disclosing to the LPs to get them to approve this conflicted transaction. So I, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised to see this sort of concept float to the top of the list, but it also feels like a waste of paper to require certain things that have developed over time. And LPs I mean, clearly some LPs are are still complaining about this because I think that's what has put this topic to the top of the list. Similar, we were talking about the quarterly reporting statements. I'm just sort of surprised to hear LPs still feel like they are not getting what they want out of these transactions because we do a lot of these now for all of our very large sponsors. And it's just known how we're going to do it. And all of the mechanics are built in. Many of the things that are required by the proposed that would be required by the proposed rule are sort of naturally the guidance we give folks. So um, an odd an odd decision. You also saw this. If any of your listeners fill out form PF, there were amendments right. prior to this proposal that one of the changes to form PF would be if you do if you are doing one of these transactions, you have a one day notice to file a form PF to tell the SEC that you gave, that you did this. And they have decided that advisor-led secondaries are deemed the same sort of emergent action as if you were in a clawback or a GP were removed, which just doesn't feel like it has the same gravity in my mind uh, to LP. So right. an odd one in my mind, you know, just, just yeah. seemingly odd. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so the audience knows, I mean, uh, one leading thing here is a fairness opinion. So they require a fairness opinion. Alpa, in your practice, when people do these secondaries, do they do the LPs receive a fairness opinion or do the uh, advisor receive a fairness opinion? It's not universal, but in a lot of them, they do. It, or or evaluation range or some sort of independent price. Now, circumstances where we wouldn't necessarily say it's required is if you were in a true auction, you know, a true third party um, bid and and a thir- an independent third party set the price based on their own diligence to say, yeah, the asset is worth X dollars. And so then that's what they sell for. In in circumstances where we feel like there's a true market price, we would say, look, a fairness opinion is probably not required here. Mm-hmm. If you are conflicted and you're selling to your own fund, so you know fund four is selling to fund seven, um, we would say, yeah, you probably need a fairness opinion because you're on both sides. Like I can't trust that we're going to come up with the right the right dollar value for the different sets of LPs here. So let's get a third party to, to, to tell us that this is the right price. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so far, the things we've talked about are relevant just to registered investment advisors, or at least in the proposed rule, they, they state that these are requirements for registered investment advisors. We got a couple here, prohibited activities and preferential treatment that apply to all. In another podcast, we talked about exempt reporting advisors. And so these um, prohibited activities, uh, charging certain fees and expenses to a private fund or its investment, such as uh, unperformed services is the way that the SEC puts it, which are accelerated monitoring fees. If you're getting paid for supposedly quote unquote monitoring a portfolio company, which to me has always been a little kind of a, you know, um, it's always kind of questionable how much uh, monitoring over and above just kind of monitoring an investment. Um, uh, but if you're getting paid a monitoring fee for five years and then there's an exit in two years, you know, there hasn't been any kind of give back for those other three years. Um, to my knowledge, you can tell us if that's that's uh, if that's wrong. And then other uh, seeking reimbursement or identification for uh, liability for certain activity on the part of the advisors, reducing the amount of advisor clawback. And then um, uh, charging fees or expenses related to portfolio investment on non-prorata basis, and a couple of and a couple of other things. What do you? Uh, which what, what was your reaction when you looked at the prohibited activities rule? Did it cover everything that you you thought it would? Did they leave things out? Did they add some things that you uh, were a little surprised? Surprised? Yeah, I I am surprised, frankly, by the whole list, right? And mm -hmm. and this is more just philosophical. Of this is not how the Advisors Act has worked before, right? This notion of just prohibiting certain types of activities as opposed to telling the LPs precisely, right. here are the things that we're going to do in the fund, here are the consequences, you decide if you want to invest or not. So let's take the indemnification provision. That is, a, as you know, a, a highly litigated point in the negotiations. And advisors sort of have their reasons for it. LPs obviously have their reasons that they argue against it. An LP has the choice to say, you know what, that is just a risk I don't want to take. I, I don't want to pay for for um, indemnification of you in the case of gross negligence, so I'm not going to invest. That is not a hidden term. LPs should be in a position to say, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be in this fund. I think the issue I sort of just philosophically have here is one. This is another point uh, about the retroactive na nature of all of these rules, because this is a highly negotiated point. Imposing now a different liability standard, if you are launching a new fund going forward, that would change the whole dynamic, right? right. Fees would be different. In, no doubt, invest, uh, firms will increase their advisory and performance fees because they are taking on a lot more liability if the standard is a lot lower. So the notion of coming in over the top and saying, nope, you existing funds must impose this, low, this uh, liability standard instead of what you had negotiated feels sort of patently unfair in the sense of that's not the negotiated business deal. If it's going to be going forward, we could have at least sort of renegotiated the fees and said, if we're taking on this extra liability, we also need to be compensated more. And that's the deal that the LP and the GP could come to together. But I think more important in my mind is just beyond, you know, getting off my philosophical high horse for a second is like the actual practicality here, again, in the indemnification point, it, that is a higher standard than even in the mutual fund retail world. And so when you're comparing private funds that are supposed to have sophisticated investors and where, you know, let's just take our private equity clients who are really involved in a portfolio company and often open to litigation from, from any number of individuals yeah. because of the actual thing that the LPs are hiring them to do, to go in and operate the fund. And you're changing the liability standard such that it's it's higher than even a retail product that takes passive positions in in companies. 
is a real, I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. And yeah, I think it's kind of hard because, you, yeah, you've got funds that are supposed to be, or that, that are exempt from the Investment Company Act. And yet That's you're right. imposing a higher, and, uh, and this is, more indemnification. Yeah, and this goes to your philosophical, to more of the philosophical point of these are supposed to be sophisticated investors. I understand what the SEC is saying is that this hasn't quite played out the way the, the statute expected it to, right? These the LPs are saying they're not able to negotiate these points. And I understand that on the reporting requirements. But this strikes me as a fundamental point, right? This is, the, these are sophisticated investors. They can just choose not to invest. And this is, to me, the product that they are buying, that they are purchasing, that they're investing in is something that has an indemnification standard that protects the advisor from all sorts of things that that may happen in the course of their ordinary operations. And look, you know, the standard goes further. It, it, it's saying you can't be indemnified for willful misconduct and and um, you know of uh, uh, any parade of horribles. And and I think that's fine. Frankly, no, none of my clients have complained about that. We don't expect that to be the reason. You know, bad faith uh, to to seek indemnification. But the notion of gross negligence. Mm-hmm. can happen and does happen right. in the ordinary courts. So you've changed the value proposition of what advisors are signing up to do with this particular provision. Yeah, and removing exculpation. So now it's yes. kind of, yeah, pretty, pretty rain there. Um, out of all these, I kind of, ex- I, I, I sort of expect not every, all of these would survive to a final rule. I don't know. There's a lot of, a lot of people are saying, oh, they think that uh, all of this would just be final just the way it's written. Uh, to me, looking at the list, you know, maybe, you know, people are having comments on a specific item. So I, I don't know, maybe not all these will uh, will appear in a final rule. What do you think, Alpa? Yeah, I mean, that's crystal ball time, right? I, yeah. I'm i with you. I can't. Well, one rules always change. That is mm-hmm. that, you know, this is this is the time to do your civic duty plug. Like the comment period matters. And then as, as one of the minions that used to read all the comment letters for rules, um that we wrote like somebody's reading all of them they're writing a summary and they're reporting up so everybody knows you know what the comment themes are so you know you mentioned the comment period is back open if you haven't commented you should if you've got a point of view you should and and if you've got granular details about how stuff works because remember the people writing these rules are very smart lawyers they are not necessarily practitioners dealing with this on a day-to-day basis anymore or, or they may not have the full scope and i think if you look at the um the, the clawback, we didn't get into detail. I don't think we need to, but like the claw, the GP clawback for taxes, I am not a tax lawyer. I, I, I feel dangerous enough to, to wade into this area, but I've talked to enough tax lawyers to know <laughs> the legal opinion is this is crazy. This won't work. <laughs> and so, you know, I think I think those comments will be taken. Crazy being a, a technical legal term. Exactly. That my, 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 own, my own terms of art here. But <laughs> I'm with you. I don't think all of these get passed. I, I would be sort of surprised, certainly on some of these prohibited activities that you see that full suite go through. We've talked a few, you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the main two that I think are biggest, are the bigger problematic ones. Um, I think you, I don't think they were sort of thought through all the way in, in the many repercussions they could be. So I would be surprised if all of them go through. How should we interpret the fact that the comment period has been reopened? When does the SEC do that? Yeah, I mean, this is again, this is if you if you complain loud enough, they will. I mean, I will tell you the point of opening the comment period after the comment period closed is very cynical because everybody already rushed to put their letters in. <laughs> right. Like, I, you know, we worked with a number of a number of folks to, to write letters and, you know, up until that last day, really trying to put in concepts. But then you're like, well, we don't want to go and we don't have time to really right. draft this this section in a really sort of granular way. So let's just send it. With the with the overarching theme, and and frankly, if you had opened it 
you know, if the, if the extension had happened before we had submitted, we could have added in many, many paragraphs to describe in more granular detail about what our point of view was. To open it now, I don't know that anyone's going to go back. I'm sure some people will send in comment letters, but it's one of these, like, if you if you complain enough, and I think Chairman Gensler, they stuck to their guns from day one. People have been complaining about these comment periods, and in particular, yeah. how they all relate to one another. This is a complex area, and these are complex rules. Yeah. And so to give everybody all of 30 days, and then it turned out being closer to 60, is still just not enough time to really gather thoughts. Uh, we all have day jobs as well, where we're sort right. of this is this was all, you know, effectively non-billable pro bono work in the background, trying to trying to come up with, um, you know, helpful comments to to give to the SEC. So but I think what I think what really moved the needle here was the uh, uh, the group of bi bipartisan senators and Congress people stepping up and sending a letter saying you need to give more time in, in yes. that front. Like when you're when your appropriators say we are not happy with this, you you tend to listen <laughs> to them than than the many other industry participants complaining. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jay Knight is the head of the Committee Federal Regulation of Securities. And I remember he was sending out an email and saying, OK, these are the people in charge of the comment letters. And there's like eight, <laughs> eight yeah. things, uh, all these rulemakings. Uh, happening yeah, there's so many. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, we're talking about the Advisors Act rules here. There are rules being uh, debated uh, by you know the corporate finance division and, and all the other rules that that will affect our clients in the same way. So you're not just talking about these rules; you are talking about a whole smorgasbord of rules that have an interplay that nobody's going to be able to sort of really think through appropriately. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, to close it out on the proposed rules, the preferential treatment rule uh, prohibiting private fund advisors from providing preferential terms to certain uh, investors regarding redemptions from the fund or information about portfolio holdings or um, exposures. And then uh, uh, some uh, prohibiting private fund advisors from providing other preferential treatment unless that's disclosed to current and prospective investors. And not just that there's some inequality there. Which is, uh, you know, normal. Oftentimes in the LPA and PPM, hey, we're going to have side letters and the like. But to actually disclose those side letters yeah. is usually a negotiating point. Uh, instead, it's just kind of a uh, this is uh, hitting with the sledgehammer here. What do you think this is going to do to the practice of exchanging side letters and the like? How is that going to affect that? It, this one will be interesting. I, I'm sort of surprised. I haven't gone through to see if any of the larger LPs have commented because this is who that hurts, right? Like they're the ones with, you know, we're cutting you a $300 million check. We expect to get all of this information plus right. some uh, because we have, we, you know, we, we are, we are the largest investor. Um, we'll see. It, I think what will happen is, you know, if that side letter provision goes through, you're right. I think this is just going to be a function of, okay, here's here's all of the side letters to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Or we come up with compendiums that have all the detailed provisions. And as you know, certainly in these, um, you know, the, these $14 billion private equity funds, there are side letters for each investor. You may have 200 investors. The, the, <laughs> the top 150 of them may have, you know, 150 page side letter of which 120 pages is just tax stuff <laughs> that right. I glossed yeah. over from, I'm like, well, that's the tax lawyer's got to deal with that, right? There's usually, they're sort of very specific items that they need. They're not like these interesting, sexy ideas or points that that sort of merit um, full disclosure. But that's what's going to happen. I think mean, it's just going to be overkill to all the LPs of like, here, here's all of our, here's a thousand pages of side letters that you can, <laughs> you can review through and let us know if you have questions. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens on that. On the one hand, you could see uh, um, 
managers, I mean, smaller managers who have smaller LPs say, hey, you know, I don't want to give any silos. We, we have a lot of emerging managers that come out mm -hmm. and they say, oh, we're not going to give side letters. And then four months later, they say, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll give one. And then next thing you know, it's just normal. <laughs> and we're just getting- No, that's right. Side you, um, you know, managers with a lot of leverage will just say no. And we've seen yeah. that. Like if they've got, you know, if the fund is oversubscribed, everybody's trying to get in, you have no interest in, in accommodating bespoke side letters. You may just say, look, here's the 10 tax things we'll give everybody, but we're not engaging in, in the granular negotiations of different side letter terms. And so we're just not going to do it. Yeah. And that could very well be where we end up for all managers. That will be very difficult, I think, because people are just used to getting them. And so yeah. instead of saying, we're not going to give any, I think managers may end up saying, fine, we'll just have to give it to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And some people have to, I mean, some uh, uh, funds, they've fund the funds. I mean, the funds have committed to their LPs that they're yeah. going to get certain things. That's right. So they don't, they don't have a choice. Okay. Well, wrapping up, is there anything, anything else you think that we should know about on these proposed rules, uh, timeline or anything they left out or, or, or the like? Yeah, look, I guess timeline is interesting, right? We're in a we're, comment period is back open. The speculation had been that they'll try to push these rules through uh, by the end of the year. But look, they're also, they've got a big rulemaking agenda and they've got a lot of staff leaving at this point. So somebody's got to do all the work. It's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot of, you know, rulemaking is hard. It's a very difficult process and it's not just uh, one division writing it. You've got to get, you got to get buy-in from, from all sorts of parts of the SEC and, and they are in, you know, much like everybody is sort of living through the great resignation. If you're losing staff, it's hard to keep up. So I, I no longer find myself speculating as the timeline and just sort of, oh, well, we'll see how this goes because yeah. this notion of happening by the end of the year doesn't quite seem likely, frankly. I see them tweeting out all these job openings. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, my last question for you. So why is it advisor and not advisor? Why is it advisor with ER and not advisor with OR, which is how normal people this is, Gus, Gary, this is a question after my own heart. I, I, I This is the hill for me to die on. I thank you for question, asking this. Um, I, this is from, from my first year associate days. I had a partner once tell me, marked this up on, on, a, on a memo I wrote, and, and now I am that partner that, that makes, speaks the gospel here. And that comes directly from the statute. So you yeah. will see... Um, it, you will see all of the rules, all of the, the, the regulations, guidances will always refer to an investment advisor with an E. Now, where that comes from, I don't know. I don't know where the sort of genesis of that compared to an advisor. And, and obviously beyond the scope of this podcast, but, but when you hear the broker-dealer people talk about advisors with an O, and now, you know, what, what's the difference between a financial advisor and, a, and an <laughs> investment advisor, you, you open a whole different can of worms. <laughs> I had a website, um, a website designer once, and just no matter how many times I would put in <laughs> SER, he kept changing it to OR. He's like, well, I prefer that spelling, but, I'm like, but I can't have that spelling. People will think That's I don't right. know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's um, right. Well, great. Well, uh, Alpha, thank you so much for your time. We know it's uh, very valuable and just said thank, thank you so much for telling us about these proposed rules. And we look forward to you uh, uh, coming back one day. It's my pleasure. To, thanks for having me on. Yeah. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for another podcast uh, from uh, VC Law from the American Bar Association. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.